Let's just still our hearts. And I want you to pray to the Lord now that he would speak to you. Just ask him to speak to you tonight. We just so desperately need a word from the Lord. We need fresh manna from heaven. We need to hear that rhema word, that spoken prophetic utterance from the mouth of God for now. So you show God your hunger as we pray just now. Oh, Father, we're so desperate. We're so hungry and thirsty for you. In a dry and a weary land where there is no water. But we thank you, Lord, you are the fountain of living waters. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you said, if any person thirst, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So we come, Lord, to that fountain, Jesus Christ, tonight. Father, we come into your heavenly Jerusalem this evening to that river that flows from beneath the throne of God. And at either side of that river is the tree of life. And the leaves thereof shall bring the healing of the nations. And Lord, we want to feed on Christ tonight. He is the tree of life. He is the water of life. And Lord, would you feed us? Would you quench our thirst? Would you satisfy us with the Lord Jesus Christ? And by the power of your Holy Spirit, and speak to us tonight in a way that quickens us, in a way that actually brings life and renewal, revitalization, revival. Lord, we want revival. We don't want to hear about it anymore. We don't want to pray about it as such. We want to experience it. We want to know that touch of God that ignites us. We want that fire from heaven that sets us ablaze. We want to know what it is to be wrecked, to be transformed, to be turned completely inside out and upside down by the power of God. And so we're crying to you tonight, do it, Lord, and do it for me. Do it for each of us personally. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. And thank you for coming tonight. And uh, those of you who are here for the first time, you're very welcome. And this is our fourth week. And uh, we're finishing next week for the Christmas break. And uh, I, when I was asked to do these meetings, and we kind of confabbed and talked and prayed together, mentioned myself, after the launch night, um, I felt led when we were thinking about what we might do these evenings to, to, to continue with the theme of revival and revival now. And I'm not exaggerating that in a moment after the conversation with Mitch on the phone when he said, think about what to do, immediately after that conversation, I knew it was going to be revival now. And I got a series of subjects, themes, right away, just like that. I wrote it down a, a jotter. And I didn't do much else with them, but they're still sitting there. The one I'm going to bring to you tonight wasn't on the jotter. And I was out praying on Monday or Tuesday or something like that, a walk and praying, and I really felt the Lord. I thought it was on the jotter. I'm just being honest with you. I thought this was on the jotter, and I, I then started to change my mind about what I was going to prepare for this week. 
And then I got home and looked at the jotter and it wasn't on it. Um, so it's, it's a, a new freedom movement. We need a new freedom movement. And what you think it might be talking about isn't maybe what it's going to talk about. But we're going to read here the demon-possessed man, the, the account of this man who's given some very wonderful titles, the maniac, the, the madman, uh, the demoniac of Gadara. Not very flattering, are they? Um, but let's read verse 1 through to 20. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, that's Jesus, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus I love this verse, one of my most favorite verses in Scripture. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then he began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for, them, for him and all marveled. Now the last time we were here last Thursday night, We've looked at a number of things that we need a new uh, Christ-centered movement, a new Jesus movement. And then the week after that was we need a new prayer movement. Last week was we need a new holy movement. And tonight we're looking at we need a new freedom movement. And unfortunately, as we thought about holiness last week, and holiness is necessary, and we need a new holiness movement, but holiness is elusive to a lot of people. And I'm talking about Christians where there seems to be some kind of blockage, some barrier for them to actually experience what we might call the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ, everything that Jesus intended them to experience in sanctification, another fancy name for holiness. And there's definitely, I think, a sense that the church is kind of unable to receive the message of holiness, and certainly unable to receive the message of revival, because the church is so 
bound. The church is in bondage. Now you might think I'm being overly negative here, but I don't think I am. I think I'm just being real, spiritually real. And last week, do you remember I quoted you Evan Roberts when he was asked by that journalist, that reporter, and what had got him on to seeking revival? He, he said some of these words I quoted to you last week. For a long time, a long time, I was much troubled in my soul and my heart by thinking over the failure of Christianity. Imagine talking about the failure of Christianity. But see, that's why God could use a man like Evan Roberts. Not because he was negative or pessimistic, but because he actually recognized that the church of his day was bankrupt. That the institutions were broken. That the wineskin was, was not fit for purpose for what God wanted to pour out. And he went on to say, oh, it seemed such a failure. Such a failure. And I prayed and prayed, but nothing seemed to give me any relief. And I believe that the church today, in the West I'm talking about, and certainly in our land, is like Lazarus. They have new life of a kind, but they're bound up in grave clothes, and they need to hear a word from heaven that says, listen, and let him go. Now, if you were to turn to 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 5, and verse 23 and 24, these are some powerful words about holiness and sanctification. I didn't read them last week. We, we didn't have time to go into this. But I want to touch on it for a moment tonight when we talk about freedom ministry. It is for freedom, Paul says, that Christ has set you free. You shall know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth shall make you free. On 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24, my version says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He also will do it. So God wants us to be holy. Eugene Peterson in the message renders it like this. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy, H-O-L-Y and whole, W-H-O-L-E, make you holy and whole, put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our Master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. But I want you to see this play on words. And I think Peterson really renders well the concept of what true holiness is that we looked at last week. Because I told you, it's about two eyes. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's about identity, knowing who you are, and intimacy, actually getting to know God more. But here we see you cannot be holy without being whole, W-H-O-L-E. Do you understand? There's a lot of holiness movements, a lot of Christians who are striving and struggling to be more holy, but they're failing and they're limping along to heaven because they're not whole, they're not healed, they're not free. And then there are those who want to be whole, they want to be healed, they want to be free, but they don't want to be holy. And it doesn't work like that. Sanctification and true holiness is being whole and holy. And it is a holistic gospel in the truest sense of the meaning, which means God wants us to fit us, fix us together, fit for the coming of Jesus, spirit, soul, and body. He wants to restore us wholly. I wonder, are you free? I wonder, is the church free? I wonder, are we a freedom movement? And I deliberately didn't call this 
um, we need a new deliverance movement because, unfortunately, that word and that ministry of deliverance has fallen into disrepute. And for, for some obvious reasons, there's been a misuse of deliverance ministry. There has been an abuse of it in many respects. Some people need deliverance from deliverance ministry. And there's certainly been a misunderstanding about what it actually is and what it entails. And often deliverance is practiced on the fringes of the church by lone rangers and sometimes by wacky people. But one of the reasons that has happened and deliverance has been pushed to the fringes of the church is because it has not been embraced by the mainstream as a necessary part of the sanctification process. Now hear me out. Deliverance is not everything. And sometimes people who get in deliverance and sometimes who have deliverance and some folk who see deliverance for the first time when their eyes are open, they realize the devil actually is real and I can be bound by him. They think it's the whole package. And it's not Hear me out, it's not the be-all and end-all, but it is vital as an ingredient for sanctification. Because 1 John 3, verse 8, it says that the Son of God came into the world, the Son of God was manifested, he was revealed that he might destroy the works of the wicked one. Now, we're not giving glory to Satan tonight or the demonic realm, and I'm even hesitant talking about this stuff at times, But the fact of the matter is we can't deal with the devil if we're not cognizant of him and if we are ignorant of his devices. That's why there's so many verses in Scripture telling us not to be ignorant of his schemes and to be aware that he goes about as a roaring lion seeking to devour us. So if that is the case, we need to be aware that Jesus wants us set free. He came into the world. The word um, manifests to set us free is actually the word luo in the Greek, which means to loose. Jesus came into this world to loose us from the power of the enemy. If that's the case, we've got to understand how we can get bound. And we've got to understand as a church how to administer the ministry of deliverance in our ranks to people who are still bound, to Christians who can't get through to revival, can't get through to holiness, because they are bound by the devil himself. And I know that's controversial to talk about Christians being bound by the devil, but we need to waken up and get real. If a Christian can be affected by sin, and a Christian can be affected by the world, and a Christian can be affected by the flesh, I'm sure nobody here tonight is going to say, I'm not affected by any of those things or tempted by them. Why is it the devil the most powerful spiritual being in this world apart from God and his forces, why is it that the devil can't touch us? I mean, it's just ridiculous. It doesn't even make sense, and it's certainly not biblical. Because all the material in the New Testament Scripture that is talking about the devil was given to Christians to warn them about him. Everything, even the Gospels, because the Gospels originally were given to, to the church. Everything's telling us, put on the armor. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We've got an enemy. Don't be fooled. Don't let him overtake you. Don't give him a foothold. Now, why would the apostles say all of that if we can walk around immune from the devil? I don't have time to go into all this in too much depth, but I I have summarized the three areas that the enemy can get us into the area of sins, wounds, and demons. I have a book on it if you want to read up about it, uh, Breaking Through the Barriers. Breaking through barriers to blessing, overcoming sins, wounds, and demons. And sins, we willingly engage in those sins, and we need to repent of those sins. 
but we need healing for wounds. That's why a lot of evangelicals are hammering the gospel so much and people keep falling off the the, the wagon because they've got wounds that need healed. And it's not enough just to preach, repent, repent, believe, believe. We need a message that's powerful enough to heal broken hearts so that people don't need to reach out to sin anymore. They don't need their crutches and their salves and their drugs. But then we also need to be aware that where there is a lot of willful sin and where there are wounds, the enemy loves to inhabit those areas and he brings people into bondage. And sins need to be repented of, wounds need to be healed, but demons need to be expelled. And some might say, but there wasn't all this talk of deliverance in previous revivals. Any of you thinking that? I've thought that. Well, let me answer it in a couple of, three ways at least. First, it's in the New Testament. So I really don't care what happened in previous revivals. If it's in the New Testament, I want to experience everything that's in the New Testament. Jesus did this. The apostles did this. That's enough for me. But a second answer, I think it was happening in other revivals, but just there was maybe a lack of understanding of what was going on. There maybe wasn't the terminology that we might use around it all. I think there is a revival in understanding this stuff now in this present age. I think their repentance was so deep that the demons couldn't stick it, and the power of God was so dense that the Holy Spirit had his way in, in, in these revivals, where the power of God was so manifest. But thirdly, my answer, I suppose, is a, is a rhetorical question to you. How far do you want revival to go? Because I don't believe any of the revivals that we've experienced in our past, no matter how great they may have been, and they have been great, or anything compared to what God really wants to do. And what he really wants to do in these last days in a final harvest. And I personally believe that freedom ministry is going to be a big part of what God will do and is doing. And I'm talking about personal individual deliverance and freedom, but I'm also talking about how that relates to revival and how it relates to the church. I do a fair bit of, of healing, prayer, and deliverance ministry. But a number of years ago, I started to ask the Lord, it's great and all, Lord, thank you for this, but why am I doing this? What's this all about? And I, from a right young age, as a teenager, have had a passion for revival. I'm not saying that in any way to say, aren't I a great fellow? I'm just telling you what, what God did in my heart, that's all. And I read about revival and studied revival. And Here's me in my 30s, not now, now, but whenever I was asking this question, in my 30s asking, uh, what is this all about? And I remember hearing a, a speaker, preacher by the name of Alistair Petrie, some of you know him well, and he was talking about how he was a minister of a Scottish parish, and there was a whole lot of uh, deliverance ministry started taking place in his church and around the, the parish area. And he asked God, I'm sitting in Lisburn listening to this guy preach, and he, asked, he says, he asked God, what's this all about? And the Lord said to him, what I'm doing in individual lives, the principles to save and set free individual lives are the identical same principles to set free communities and transform whole nations. And what I'm teaching you in the individual is actually what needs to be applied to the corporate in order to see revival and transformation around you. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went on for me as well. 
In other words, what we're experiencing or what we should experience in the micro of the Christian individual's life needs to happen in the macro. And it was Frank Hammond in his book, Pigs in the Parlor, who said this, deliverance is not a panacea, a cure-all. Yet it is an important part of what God is doing in relationship to the current revival in the church. That was many years ago. But I believe it's key, a key part of what God wants to do in his church. Here's the reason why. God wants to free up and heal his church. And he wants us to be healing agents for the world around. But we cannot heal the hurts that we are not healed from ourselves. We cannot set free the bondages that we are still bound by ourselves. And so how is this done? Very simply. We need to be preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now I'm not getting into a whole debate here tonight, but there's the gospel, you know, the ABC of salvation. And praise God for that. If that was all there was, it would be enough, wouldn't it? But it's not all there is. The gospel of the kingdom is far greater than just having your sins forgiven and going to heaven. The gospel of the kingdom is not just pie in the sky when you die. The gospel of the kingdom is something here and now. It's experiencing this abundance of life, this overflowing of life. It's experiencing a measure of wholeness. And we can't be completely perfect now. We can't be completely healthy now. We're all going to die at some time if Jesus doesn't return. Okay? But what we are saying is the gospel that Jesus preached, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons, freely receive, freely give, is a gospel of abundance, a gospel of more than just a forensic justification of your sins in the eyes of God. And we need to preach that again. A gospel of power, in other words. When people are saved and set free, then there can be ramifications. When people truly repent and then get delivered of strongholds in their life, not only are they set free, but this is one I want you to see the potential of tonight. Their actual community can be impacted to such an extent that revival can happen. Do you believe that? There's a spiritual principle here. If you want to be a freedom fighter, We've had plenty of them over the years, haven't we? We've had the green, white, and orange ones and the red, white, and blue ones. And we've got the Palestinian ones. We've got all sorts of freedom fighters right across the world in the whole spectrum of nationalities and political viewpoints. Nationalism, fascism, communism, every ism under the sun. But true freedom fighters are those who battle for the freedom of the souls of men and women. But the question is, what are we fighting for? And where are we fighting our battle? Unfortunately, the church has got completely distracted by the devil in this age of polarization by politics, by science, by viruses and vaccines and all the rest, by, by climate change. When the fight that we are meant to be engaged in is a spiritual warfare, not with flesh and blood. What weapons are we using? I'm not against apologetics. I have to say I'm not a great fan of it because sometimes I think it's more about reason than fire. And you can never argue a man or woman into the kingdom of God. You can never argue or debate a person in the kingdom of God. But you, you can bring light and you can reason truth as Paul did. 
But we need the power of God. And so often we're using apologetics. Or we're using academia. Or we're using the legal system. Or we're using politics. Media. Money. When Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10. What was it? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Fleshly. Not merely human. But mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Those are our weapons and the church is not using them. I'm not saying this is how we fight our battles. How do we fight our battles? We lift the phone and talk to the local MP. Or the lawyer on the, the committee or session or staff. Let me say this to you. And I'm saying this to you in an evangelistic organization, and this should enthuse you. Never underestimate the impact of one soul saved and set free on a whole community. Never underestimate that. You look at the demoniac we read about tonight, and look at the impact on this place called the capitalist. If you look at verse 18, you know his story. And then he got into the, Jesus got back into the boat. And he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. So he wanted to follow Jesus, which is a good thing. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them the great things that the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Now, Jesus usually wanted men and women to follow him. So, but, but Jesus knew what he was up to here. He was sending this guy back into his home vicinity to have an impact because Jesus knew that this man's freedom this man's deliverance was going to have a ripple effect in the spiritual realm right throughout that whole vicinity. Look at verse 20. And he began, he, he, he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Now the name Decapolis actually means the ten cities. So this was like a region of ten cities. Now I want you to come back into chapter 4 of Mark to give you a bit of context, before chapter 5, the demoniac, Jesus is going across the lake, Galilee, and he gets into the storm. You remember that? And it was a demonic storm. How do I know that? Because Jesus rebuked the storm with the same word used, rebuke, is used of Jesus in the Gospels for rebuking the demons. This was a demonic storm, and the devil wanted to drown Jesus so that he wouldn't go to the demoniac. Why? Because the demoniac was the power base of the satanic realm in that area. They were all terrified of him. They had him out on the hillside in the graveyard, and they tried to bind him and all the rest, but he broke from the chains. But he was like a, a lightning rod. He was like a staging post for the, the powers of darkness in that area. And the devil tried to drown Jesus. I love this, because Jesus then drowned him. The pigs and the demons right after. Now, you can't drown demons, but the demons were in the pigs and they drowned. But I want you to understand what's going on here. This territory, the Decapolis, is known historically as a most challenging place, certainly as a mission field. But after this event, the crowds from the Decapolis started to follow Jesus. And the testimony to the effectiveness of the healed man's witness is in the next couple of chapters. You look at chapter 7 of Mark. Look at chapter 7, verse 31. Again, departing from...
from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region, Decapolis, to the Sea of Galilee. So he's in the same area. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears. And he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphtha, that is, be opened. And immediately the, the ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed. And he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one it wasn't going to happen. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He made both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, I want you to see the change. In Mark 5, the initial reaction of the, the pig farmers and the people of the vicinity was, Get away from us. Leave us. They were afraid of what they had seen. But all of a sudden, because that man was set free and the power of his testimony, the whole region began to open up to Jesus Christ. And now there was multitudes. Look at Matthew, I'll just read it for you, Matthew 15 and verse 30 of the same region it says. Matthew 15, 30, Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Never lose the value of the impact of one soul saved and delivered. And the impact that deliverance can have on the demonic strongholds. Margaret and Robin Clark are here tonight from Transformations Ireland. And a number of years ago, I can't remember how many, now three or four, we, we were in Germany at a, a prayer conference of intercessors from all over the world. And it was actually in um, Hernhut, which is where the Moravian revival took place. Count Zinzendorf and so on, the Moravians. And at that gathering, it was very interesting on many levels, but at that gathering, George Otis Jr., if you know him, he, he did the transformation videos years ago, um, documentaries about places in the world that revival was happening. He gave me a book, a little book, on the Mutlingen Revival, right? I'd never heard of it at all. But it was all about this man called Johann Blumhardt. It's one of the amazing revivals that's very little known. And he was appointed as a pastor to Mutlingen, near the Black Forest in Germany, if you know where that is. And there was a girl in the parish called Gottlieb Dietus. And she was greatly disturbed, and no one had an answer for this girl and she was suspected to have dabbled in magic practices, which, of course, are still rife in the Black Forest area to this day. And our own house had become renowned for weird sounds and eerie goings-on. And she was also very ill in mind and body. And the doctor, the physician, was convinced that this was spiritual. And he lamented that the church couldn't help her with it. They couldn't do anything. And initially, when, when Bloomhart came to the area, he avoided the girl which is largely what the church does in these situations. But eventually he was too challenged by the girl's predicament. And when he began to realize this was demonic, he walked into her room, and there she was lying unconscious, and he shouted in her ear, Gottlieben, put your hands together and pray, Lord Jesus, help me. We have seen enough of what the devil can do, now let us see what the Lord Jesus can do. And this began a process for him of experimentation and learning for about two years. 
And so in this book, I think it's called The Fight, and this became known as Blumhard's Battle. And at the end of 1842, it all came to a climax. When the demonic manifestations ended in this girl's life, and they had been weird and wonderful for a while, but they all ended with a cry that was heard right across the whole town. Jesus is victor. Jesus is victor. The whole town heard it. And it led to a massive revival. There were many healings. There were signs and wonders. Even opponents and skeptics of Christianity were transformed. Marriages were saved. Sworn enemies were reconciled. This was all before the charismatic renewal and the 1904-1905 Pentecostal Welsh revival, long before it. But God's Spirit moved in power, and it all came, it all turned on the fulcrum of this one girl's salvation and deliverance. Because this girl was like a conductor of demonic strongholds, and the influence of the devil that was broken in her life broke across a whole area. Do you know there are earthly places that can have heavenly significance, both positive and negative? You've heard of Bethel. I'm not talking about in California. I'm talking about in the Bible. Um, You've heard of it, the, the house of God, the gateway to heaven. And there was a ladder coming down. The angels of God ascended and descended. It was like an opening, a thin space, a special place. But then the converse of that is a place like Pergamos that we read of in the book of Revelation chapter 2, which it was said was Satan's seat, where Satan's throne rested. This is New Testament. So there's a place in Europe on the earth that in Asia, anyway, Asia Minor, there was a place where Satan had his headquarters. I wonder where it is today. A place can be a staging post for for the enemy, a colony of the enemy's devices and empire. But people can also be power packs. You understand? Power bases of the enemy. And of course, that's all related to the rights that we give to the enemy in our own lives, the rights that are given to the enemy on land. And people in the mission field know about this. Largely, a lot of them know about this. But then they come back home, people don't talk about it or believe it. And we think this is relevant to the jungle where there are animists who are bowing down to ancestors, gods and idols and all the rest. But it's not in in Western sanitized Europe. Waking up. We have as much of it here, we could have more of it here. And there are individuals who can be earthing points, vantage points for strongholds. There can be areas that are strongholds of the enemy. We have in the Old Testament the law of double reference. Do you remember, and, and Mitch alluded to this, and he, he had a clue, by the way, what I was preaching on tonight at all. The king of Babylon is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 14. That's Nebuchadnezzar. But if you're reading Isaiah 14 with your eyes open, you know that he's, Isaiah is talking about more than a mere king. In, in Babylon, he's talking about the devil himself, who was a force, there was a power, a prince of Babylon that was behind this king, that was animating this king and moving this king. 
And then you go to, to Ezekiel 28, you read of the king of Tyre, and again we see allusions to Lucifer himself. And so this is the law of double reference. In other words, there can be human entities, but there can be spiritual powers that are moving through them. There can be areas. But the devil is using it as a landing pad where there's strong men in the spiritual sense that are ruling and reigning in that area. But listen, God can save, God can heal, God can deliver, and when he does, he can send shockwaves to the enemy's kingdom. Do you believe this? See, some of us think we're just getting people ready for heaven. Is that what we're doing? Is that all we're doing? Or are we getting earth ready for heaven? Or are we getting earth ready for heaven? Hmm. Acts chapter 9, we see it. You don't need to turn to it, but there's a paralyzed man prayed for there. He had been paralyzed for eight years. And it says when he was healed, two entire communities were set free. Lydda and Sharon, two communities, all because of the healing of this one man. In Acts chapter 8, you'll remember Simon Magus, Simon the magician. And he was an occult influence in this area, Simon the sorcerer. Now, whether he was converted genuinely or not, the jury's out on that one, but there's, there's no doubt that his his occult impact was affected by his conversion or pseudo-conversion to Christianity and whatever else transpired. That his, his power base over the people, his hold, it says that he amazed the people and held them sway. It was broken by the power of the gospel and the whole town was changed to a place of joy. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. I'm nearly finished. Acts chapter 19. And there were some mimics of Paul who saw the way Paul did exorcisms and they thought, oh, that, that looks a good method, scheme. We'll do it like that. Beware of formula without anointing. And then in verse 18, they saw this. The, the people saw these Jewish exorcists, the sons of Sceva, getting beaten up by the man with the demon. And, and it says that fear came upon the community. And in verse 18, we read this. Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That's equivalent of about £4,755,000 today. Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Why? Why did it grow mightily and prevail? I'll tell you. Because look at verse 18. Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. These were believers. They had one foot in animistic religion, superstition. You might put it today in our terms. They had one foot in, in certain secret societies or they had one foot in certain witchcraft like charms and fortune telling and all and they had another foot in the church. But when they saw what the devil did to these men openly, they got terrified, and they thought, we can't have anything to do with that, the dark side. And so they brought all their amulets, all their idols, all their magic books, and they brought them together and had a big bonfire, and a very expensive bonfire it was. But it was after that. What happened? 
the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. Never underestimate the impact that deliverance can have on the whole land. I could go on here tonight, but I'm not going to go on. But what I will say is this. Listen. We need to preach the gospel of the kingdom. We need to preach the full, complete gospel that Jesus saves from sin, but he also frees from sin. And I'm sick to death with evangelicals talking about how people with certain problems have to just live with their problems the rest of their days. And if they're sexual problems, they have to live celibate for the rest of their days as disciples of Jesus, as if there's no freedom, as if there's no transformation, as if there's no deliverance. Is this what we've come to? The problem is we don't experience the power ourselves. So the message is cancelled out with the negative in our own lives. We're not experiencing the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. We're not experiencing the power of Pentecost. We're not experiencing personal revival, emancipation, liberty, and freedom. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the church needs set free. The church needs to be loosed of its grave clothes. I'm going to talk some week about unity. I'm going to, if we get there ever, I'm going to talk maybe about how God needs to move in the church if the Lord allows us that time. But listen, we've got to start with ourselves. I believe the Spirit of God is here tonight to set people free. And maybe you're in bondage. Maybe you've been in the chains of some kind of habit. Maybe there's issues of healing that you need a touch in your life that hasn't, you haven't been able to overcome the, the sinful habits in your life because there's something driving you from pain or a demonic force that's keeping you in that thing. And, and wishing you constantly, driving you, pushing you towards it. Listen, there is power in Jesus' blood. There is power in the cross. There's power in the resurrection to change you. And you don't have to be a defeated Christian. You don't have to be a defeated Christian. You don't have to limp your way to heaven. We need to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And another thing we need to do is a close. We need to come in the opposite spirit that pervades in the territory. We need to come in the opposite spirit that pervades the territory. So, to give you an example, and I'm not just plucking this one from the air, but if sectarianism and bigotry prevails in an area, we will never overcome that by being even more sectarian in our denominations and our presentations of the gospel. You've got to come in the opposite spirit. That disarms. That disarms those heavenly forces preaching the gospel, ground warfare, preaching and seeing men and women born again and set free and transformed and then coming and loving our neighbors, loving our brothers, but loving our enemies and the devil doesn't know what to do. The problem is not that we've been trying this and it's been found wanting, but we have not been trying this. We have not been doing this. Let's pray. Now let's just take a few moments in the presence of God. Written across this lectern, in other words, come Holy Spirit. You know, more and more, more and more, 
And I know I look so young and all that, but I've been in ministry now, must be 25 years. And more and more I realize without God and his Holy Spirit, I can do nothing. And more and more, I feel the burden of those words in that ancient prayer, come Holy Spirit. And that's what I pray just now. And I want you to pray it too. For your individual needs and for the need of the church. Just in the silence, no music please for a moment or two. Just in the silence. Just pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit. Say it with me. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's say it again. Come, Holy Spirit. One more time. Come, Holy Spirit. Oh, we so need you, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we've tried to do things without you. We've done church without you for decades, maybe longer, centuries. Certainly on and off in between revivals, we've, we've got, we know how to do it. We know how to do it. Oh God, we know nothing. We know nothing. We know nothing. Have mercy, Lord. Forgive us. Forgive us for trying to sit in the driving seat. Forgive us for our agendas and our programs and our policies. Oh, God. Forgive us for being driven by the world's agenda. Forgive us for being contaminated by the spirit of the age, by the spirit of Antichrist. Forgive us when we've embraced the ways of ungodliness and we have sanctified it and solemnized it in the church. Oh God. Oh God, forgive us. But we are a small group here tonight and we know that doesn't matter to you because one man like the demoniac was transformed and it tra transformed 10 cities. So Lord, we're just, here on, we're just here saying, you can do anything with a bunch like us tonight. Even just one of us. And it'll probably not be me. One of us that you really engage tonight and who meets you in the low place in repentance and in faith and in desperation. Lord, you can do wonders with one person.
Lord, the church needs change. Belfast needs change. Our schools, God, help us. They want to drive Jesus out of the schools. They're going to the courts to drive Jesus out of the schools. And we need Jesus in our schools. We need Jesus in our institutions. We need Jesus in Stormont. We need Jesus in our offices, in our factories. We need Jesus. But we don't need the religious one that's not the real one, Lord. We need you, Jesus. But Lord, we can pray about the church and we can pray about the land, but we need Jesus. We need him in our lives. We need him in our homes, in our marriages, in our relationships with our children. Lord, would you do something deep within us that it might impact our areas and our churches and our land? Lord, we need you to come. Thank you, Lord. You're with us. Thank you. We've got new life, resurrection life. But Lord, would you speak the word from heaven tonight as you did at that tomb of Lazarus? Lord Jesus, would you cry from heaven tonight? Would you rend the heavens and would you call? Would you call and say, loose them. Loose them and let them go. Loose us from our bondages, our besetting sin, our passions, our desires, our lusts, our idols. Help us, give us grace to repent. Heal us of our wounds. Lord, we're carrying offense. We're carrying hurt. We're carrying bigotry at times and sectarianism, party spirit. We're judging others. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're judging them. We're looking down our noses at them because they're not like us. Oh God, forgive us. And Lord, would you release people from demonic power tonight? I claim the blood of the Lamb over lives in this place. Lord, would you speak the word, loose them and let them go. And I take authority in the name of the Lord Jesus over the demonic forces that are here. And we take our standing in Christ above every power and principality. And we say you will have no sway here. Friends, if you will engage with God and you will repent and you will forgive people that have hurt you, and you will invite the Lord Jesus in, you have the authority to say yourself, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord, leave me. Whatever it is, whatever that tendency is, that drivenness, that empowerment, just command it to go in Jesus' name. We can pray for you afterwards. There'll be people here who will pray for you. But you, you have the authority. If you're in Christ, if you're born again, you have the authority to tell them to go in Jesus' name. Oh, Lord, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Just deal with God and let him deal with you tonight. And who knows the ramifications of a decision that you could make tonight and of meeting God in this place. God alone knows. But God knows we need it. We need all of us to take that sawdust trail, that narrow road to the cross and lay it all down. So let's do it now. Let's do it.